Welcome to Well Played Podcast, a show on all things playful and joyous in education. I'm your host, Michael Matera, sixth grade teacher, author, speaker, and co-founder of EMC2 Learning, the greatest community of educators around. Let's dive into today's episode, which is season six, episode 16. And we're talking today about player theory for powerhouse learning. So there are lots of different things that we can use as lenses in our teaching and how we think about students and how we think about what we roll out for our students. And before we get started, this is just something that I absolutely love about gamification in general, because as you start to get down the road of doing this in your classroom and adding this layer in your classroom, whether it's for a one-day activity or you know just a whole unit is gamified, or if you go all the way, all in, capital G gamification, and make a fully gamified course, all of it is going to revolve around this idea of intentionality. You're going to be thinking about the player's experience or our student's experience throughout all of it. And this just really ups sort of your classroom design, no matter what. Like it's, it's like an automatic extra you get with a gamified class that increases the results in your class kind of on top of the gamified component. But looking today... We, we know that we have you know different learning styles, and that's a, that's a thing that some people talk about, some people say is debunked, but I, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of player type and player theory that uh, Dr. Bartle came up with. Um, this idea, Richard Bartle, uh, which is a author and designer, he came up with this idea of four player types. Mainly, he was looking at the time on... The idea of a like massively multiplayer online sort of first person type game, and he sort of broke down that players tended to fall into four categories. Right, there are the uh, killers, which I'll I'll coin. Uh, I won't coin. I will use the term uh, conquerors here, and there are different like things that go along with being a conqueror, then there are the achievers, the socializers, and the explorers. And for each of these, there are like layers and upon layers of things that they find motivating. They also find that they would recoil at the idea, right? That they find approachable, like all sorts of things, right? And as we choose any particular lesson, unit, or course design, Understanding the dials that we have now before us as educators who are gamifying their courses, this is another way to look at how to design things for your classroom. So diving into these four specifically, uh, and again, there are other ones, but I just really love this this lens, and it's an easy lens, right? It's one that you can memorize. There's four of them, and you can kind of challenge yourself, how did today's lesson meet at least one of these player types uh, because I like to think how we play is also how we learn, right? Because learning is an incredibly playful act in general, right? Like it is you're you're playing around in a space that you just learned and and you that 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 would be really a, a, a piece that I'd like us to think about is how how are we th- connecting with our students as learners as well as players in our classrooms, and and, and I think this is going to help us get there. So bear with me here. Let's kind of go through them. We have the achievers. Now, the achievers, I think, are the ones that you can kind of already picture in your classroom, uh, the ones that are and the ones that aren't. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they are always succeeding, but it is that their number one 
driving force is that they they like to feel that progression. They like to feel that they're gaining points, levels, some sort of status, right? Status that comes with that achievement, whether it be badges, uh, again, moving up on a leaderboard. Here's where we see kind of these elements play out that you have some sort of social capital, if you will, because in the social environment of school, people are going to sort of recognize and see that, right? It's a game that we all have to play. And so being sort of top of that leaderboard is impressive. Uh, and I think all of our classrooms have some portion of achievers, right? These are the kids that maybe the game of school already is really good for and that they they have kind of a different experience with school and they're going to be motivated by feeling that, I guess, validation that comes from that, that loop, that feedback loop. Then uh, I kind of want to jump over to uh, the conquerors here. So, because I think it's a nice side-by-side comparison, right? The achiever actually wants to do the thing that you have laid out and they want to sort of show that they are able to play within that space and do what you asked exceedingly well and they earn top marks, top points, top badges, top, 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 right? And if they don't reach top, 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 that's okay too. They like the pursuit of it, right? It's the enjoyment to score those points. It is the enjoyment to get the badge. And even when they don't get the badge, that doesn't mean they dislike the task. It just, they are motivated by the fact that that exists in the game. Now the killers, or as I said, kind of the conquerors, they take a different approach and it, it sounds horrible right in school context, but the reality is the real world will reward the conqueror's mindset, which is really trying to find sort of more efficient ways to meet the goal, right? In a game perspective, and you have to kind of keep this in mind, right? When you think in the lens of the game perspective, they can't cheat, right? Because again, this is all based on uh, video games is, is this research, right? So the conqueror or the killer can't cheat, can't break the game physics, but they, they are going to find a better way to do this, a quicker way to do this, a quicker route. So here's an example, right? You're playing some game where like maybe you, the achiever, goes down into the dungeon. You spend an hour and a half like slaying all these little skeletons or whatever, cobbling together enough points and whatever, and eventually you beat some boss that drops some mega sword. And you have like, oh my gosh, you have this mega sword. You're so excited. You get up to the surface to trade some of the gold that you'd collected to buy something at the market. Also, you kind of want to boast and show off that you have this mega sword. And as you come up, maybe this guy decides like to sort of kidnap or rob you in this game world and you're able to take this sword immediately. So it takes you, the conqueror, maybe five minutes, six minutes to sort of get this thing that took this other person an hour and a half, two hours to get. Now in the game, that is allowed in this particular scenario in my example that you could do that. Well, that's actually a really efficient way. And the market, the real world, does appreciate that sort of efficiency. So sometimes taking the rule set that is in front of you and figuring out the best way to optimize that for your organization's experience, for your own experience, is a powerful tool. And that is what these guys are incredibly good at. The other thing that I will add that they like in a, in a built-out experience is... I don't want to say negative player interaction, but this idea that there is a way to sort of mess with the other teams, right? So is there a way that you can kind of slow down another team's progress? Uh, That would be a powerful thing. Is there a way you could steal a point or two? Again, all within the bounds of the game, 
that you set and the, the the apparatus that you put in place for your game. So again, they're not cheating. Like you maybe have produced a way that in this game of Jeopardy that you're playing, they could play a card and roll a die and steal some points. That is going to appeal to these conquerors for certain, right? Um, so you know, thinking about ways that you what do you what are you building into your lessons that might appeal to the griefers. Now, the the next one I want to talk about is the explorers, right? This one, when I take the the test or whatever, when I take the personality test, Bartle test, uh, consistently. So we're we're all some portion of all of these things. No one's like zeroed out. So you're going to get like a score in all four of these categories. I believe it's out of 200%. So, right, keep that in mind. Explorers for me comes up big. It's usually like in the 80s or 90s percent. So like, oof, this is almost like half of what drives me. And the Explorer is one that isn't driven to necessarily win the game. They're driven to play the game and explore the options that are out there. Maybe also have some sort of status based on their knowledge of what's out there. Like, So if we're talking about a video game world, maybe the fact that like you've raced ahead, you are on level 17, almost about to beat the game, but you went in that direct path. You didn't know that ooh, on level three, did you know you could go underneath the tree and find this little thing that gives you like a teleport to level 12. So like, oh, I've skipped three all the way to 12. You didn't even know that. Like, cool, cool, cool. But I know that. And right, there's some satisfaction in the knowledge you have around the world in that game is sort of what they like. They An explorer likes to exist in the world. They don't necessarily need to finish that experience. And that's kind of an interesting balance to play out. And a lot of video game designers have taken to this and built worlds really for the explorer, right? If you think about some of the video games that maybe your children play, they are way less linear than they were a decade ago. They really have built experiences that people can kind of really exist in, right? They are just playing the game. They are living in that world for a moment. Uh, a good example would be Minecraft. On, I mean, on some level, there is no win. There is no end there. Would be a good, That's digital Legos, right? And that's one of the top-selling games of the last decade. So there's a great example where the explorer just kind of wants to find new combinations, new ways to build and click together things. Great example. All right, the last sort of category that we haven't touched upon is the socializer. And I know what you're thinking, right? I teach middle school. So, right, when you tell a teacher socializer, the first thing that definitely jumps into their head is this idea of kids talking to their neighbor. And that is not what he means. Because remember, we have to look at this through kind of that gamer context. So, what does it mean to be a socializer in a game? It is somebody that is able to use their social network, right, their connected ability their ability to empathize and connect with other players and bring them together and they they take a great pride in that level of social organization in which it can be beneficial to the game so can we get a bunch of people together can you organize that so that we can go do a raid on that big old boss right would be the video game example but the cool thing is in class that skill set is so needed and other cool thing to realize, statistically speaking, is these this category, socializers, makes up the largest category of gamers, right? So when you talk about that survey being given to millions of people, socializer comes up as the strongest, the highest thing that's 
most desirable, right? It is to do together. It is to work together to defeat this task, to defeat this, like overcome this obstacle uh, in a meaningful and manageable way. So, you know, again, when we're talking about using this in our classrooms, this is huge. Like we now have some sort of secret code here that tells us that all these kids and even all the adults, I would say in the school, have these four things at play on some level. And understanding the combinations, understanding what's behind their combinations could help you design a better one-day experience, better two-week experience, and a better year-long experience when you think about these. And what I'd like to sort of challenge us all as we kind of wrap up this podcast is how could you use this immediately, right? I challenge myself. I'm not saying that I have something for all four of them in every single activity I do. But I'd stop and I sort of challenge myself and say, hey, like I haven't done something really for the Explorer lately. Like it has been pretty much a linear experience, you know, had to do X, then we transition to Y and we end on Z. Like we didn't give alternate routes, right? I didn't give them a chance to explore. Maybe I didn't give a hidden side quest out there that maybe they discovered, right? These are things that we could build in and we have to think differently for that explorer, right? See like, ooh, you can hear me getting riled up because this is my this is my thing. This is my jam. As an explorer, uh, I like those optional trappings that are out there. I like to know that I discovered something. But as teachers, we tend to only build and design for the whole. We say all students are going to experience X, then they're going to experience Y, and then they're going to get like assessed on Z. Done. But like very rarely are we used to building alternative experiences or options that only a portion of our students will opt into or ever discover if you're talking about Easter eggs. So, you know, just in that example, that's that's thinking differently about your course design. And that would be a watershed moment if you guys actually got around that corner and started thinking that way. And then you could do the same for any of the others, right? Like, what have you done for the achiever other than written on their top of their paper, like, great job and gave them a sticker? Is there some other way you could kind of beef up that achiever experience inside your activity? If you think about some of the EMC2 learning activities, we often have sort of micro-credentialing happening with inside the activity, right? They are on the board, like marking off that they finished a particular task. Maybe they're earning a particular task. Maybe we, some of them have a built-in sort of passport feature where they're getting stamped in there, right? Those are those are elements built in for the achiever, right? For that progression mechanic. Also, it's a dash, a pinch uh, for that explorer, especially if you're not required to do all of the tasks, that explorer is going to want to touch and feel all the tasks. They might not want to master it. They'd be the ones that on the Angry Birds game are okay with sort of two stars to move on so that they could see the next level, right? They want to see, they want to touch, they want to explore, they want to feel, uh, and mastery isn't their driving force. They want to be good enough to progress, right? So definitely they don't want poor quality. That is not what an explorer wants, but they want enough so that they can move on to that next experience and allowing them to move on to that experience, opening up to that next experience is huge. So I'd like for you guys to sort of think about that. As always, I would love it if you guys commented back. You can use our hashtag wellplayedpodcast and you could tag me at Mr. Matera if it's on Twitter. If it's on Instagram, it'd be at Mr. Matera EDU. So definitely write me. Let me know how it's going. Let me see if you're going to challenge yourself to using these player types in your class. Doesn't care. It doesn't matter if it's a second grade class or if it is a 12th grade AP physics class. Your your students are 
having these in them and so trying to design towards them would be a great option absolutely love having you guys each and every week i am honored to be part of your journey and i hope you have a good week and play on